Titus chapter 2. This is in no series, but it is just a message I really think is important for us to be talking about. Titus chapter 2. I'm reading an article that came in a paper that's talking about different things that happened. It says this. It seems that one day a kindergarten teacher was helping one of her students put on his cowboy boots. He asked for help and she could see why. Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots still didn't want to go on. Finally, the second boot was on. She had worked up a sweat. But then she almost cried when the little boy said, Teacher, they're on the wrong feet. She looked down and sure enough, they were. It wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on. She managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on, this time on the right feet. And it was only then that he announced, These aren't my boots. She bit her tongue rather than yell and scream. And she said, rather than scream, why didn't you say this in the first place? Like she wanted to. And once again, she struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off his little feet. No sooner had she gotten the boots off than he said, they're my brother's boots. My mom made me wear them today. (laughs) Stifling a scream, she mustered up the grace and courage she had left to wrestle the ill-fitting boots back on his feet again. Helping him into his coat, she said, now, where are your mittens? To which he replied, I stuffed him in the toes of the boots, yes. The article ends and says, her trial starts next month. (laughs) There's times and there's cases where all of a sudden you'd say, okay, I've got to be able to say the right thing or I've got to be able to say not the right thing. We work at it as parents. We say we want to teach our kids exactly what to say, to say the appropriate things at the appropriate moments. It is interesting that according to Titus chapter 2, God is a good parent. He is also concerned about what you say. And he is working, if we didn't realize it, he is working in behind the scenes on a daily basis to get us to say the right things, the right words. In fact, look at Titus 2. And if you go through the chapter, what the chapter is dealing with, if you back up, it's talking about all kinds of different people relationships. Look at some of the comments that he makes. Like in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, speak thou to Timothy. He says, okay, here's the way you need to be talking in the church. He says about the different men and ladies, he says, they shouldn't be false accusers. They got to be individuals who do not slander others, do not attack with their mouth, criticize other people. He says in verse 8 that the characteristic of a mature person is somebody of sound speech. He makes the comment further on when he's talking about you as Christians and me that when we deal with our employers, we are not answering again. That is, getting angry, smarting off, giving, giving back talk. In fact, he says to Timothy, or Titus, at the end of the chapter, he says, you need to speak these things. And so there's a lot of comments that are very open, that are very obvious about speech. There is a comment that's made in verses 11, 12, 13, 14, that's kind of subtle, but it's talking about our speech. That we are supposed to speak, we're supposed to talk, we're supposed to respond to situations a certain way. It is obvious then. God is concerned about our speech. That is, a, that is a no-brainer. It is also clear that God is providing us what I'm going to call a spiritual speech therapist that comes into our life on a regular basis in order to help us to say the right things. What I'm talking about in this, talked about in this text, look at verse 11. In verse 11 he introduces us to that speech therapist. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. He is going to personify grace in this passage. Grace as a teacher. Grace as a tutor. Grace as a nanny. Who 
who is teaching us, who is guiding us to say the right things. Now what's interesting here, he defines and describes who this grace is. This tutor from God is the same grace that saved us. He talks about that. He says that brought salvation to all men. The idea is that not all men are saved. We understand that. But it's the possibility that all men can be saved. Because grace is that which as Jesus Christ is lifted up, it's the grace of God that draws, how many does John say? All men Jesus said unto himself. And so grace is that which will go out, pre-create the conviction and dealing with people and let them see how speaking to them in a manner that Jesus loves them, he died for them. And so this grace is a teacher. A teacher that brings to us salvation, that makes us aware of how God has brought salvation to all of us, which is very clearly stating we don't get saved in and of ourselves. Grace has brought salvation to us. And it's to all men, like we said, to the individuals so that they can or could be saved. Let's make another observation. The word that he uses here, grace is teaching us, is a word in the original that literally means the individual who is the nanny or the teacher or the tutor. He's teaching us. Now according to this text, if you start with verse 1, that includes old men. If you go down a little bit, it's the older ladies. If you go down a little bit, it's the other women in the church. If you go down a little bit, it's the younger men in the church. If you go down a little bit, it's the employers the employees. If you take it right where Paul is writing, us includes he, Titus, and others. So at all levels of Christianity, grace is teaching us like a tutor. The word he uses here is the word that we give the idea of pedagogy from. Somebody who is one-on-one dealing with an individual, like a piano teacher, like a, you know, a therapist, uh, you know, with speech, or dealing with helping that individual get through and do some tutoring. And so when you think about what he's talking about in that ancient world, about how this, this uh, padayo, how he would be teaching, what that tells us about grace, it's teaching us how to live. And it's very interesting to think about the aspects of how grace teaches us. If grace is teaching, and by the way, he, he could have used the word that more commonly is used in Paul's epistles, and that is the word didasko, or didaskalos is the, is the noun. It is the common term for teacher. He is using this term that we get pedagogy from, which defines uh, the idea of somebody who is teaching in a, in a different manner than what I'm doing right now. Somebody who is teaching in that idea that is very, very personalized. It's very, very focused on one-on-one. That's the way grace works. It deals with you. It's the idea that it adapts to you where you are at, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses. So grace deals with you in your speech, probably different than grace dealt with me. When I was first saved, there was a lot of language stuff that had to be dealt with. And it was grace that was bringing into my life through, through God's working of the Spirit, through grace, it was bringing to mind that I had to change some of my language, some words that some of you have never used in your life. Thank God that you haven't. And so there's different levels that grace will instruct us based upon where we're at spiritually, what we know spiritually, what we struggle with spiritually, and so it's a very personalized, suited to each and every one of us. It is that one-on-one training that grace provides. It's very persistent. The word that he uses for teaching us is the idea of uh, this goes on all the time. That this aspect of him bringing and helping us, grace personified, helps us on a regular basis, works with us, helps us to say the right things, to, to respond the right way with our words. It is, it is an everyday thing that helps us to do that and, uh, and enables us or tries to enable us. That means grace is very patient with us because some of us are kind of dense when it comes to getting our language under control. Some of us use 
use different words that, that are inappropriate, that it takes a while for grace to patiently work with us to finally get it out of our life. So it's out of there, and it's not, not an offense anymore. And so he's talking about how grace is a really good, kind teacher. This is totally opposite from what some people experience. The Tuttle's being around, and by the way, I forgot to mention again, if anybody's able to take them to the airport Friday, let me know. Um, the uh, Tuttle's, uh, we were talking with them as they've been at our house, is like, okay, what do you like about school? And the girls are like, well, do you, and so I've heard about this. I said, do you like the teachers? Not really. What's wrong with the teachers? And they say, well, the teachers have a common method in their classroom of classroom control. In that country, loud gets control. And so in that country, the method of teaching is loud. The method of classroom control is loud. The method of encouraging the child, uh, uh, I'm saying it tongue-in-cheek, is loud, screaming and yelling loud. Not just loud like I am, but it's, they said the teachers very commonly will slam things down, very commonly scream, get in the face of kids. No headbutting, but that close. Okay, and so that's very common in their culture. Some of you may have had those types of teachers that they intimidate. They scare the daylights out of you. I had them when I was in the first few grades to the grades of school that I hated school. I tried running out of school. I got run down by the teachers you know, to catch up and then their method of getting me under control was slap, 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 slap. And I swear these people had to be trained in a Nazi camp. I mean, their, their method of discipline was hit you with rulers until they break the rulers. That was very common. And those, can you imagine that happening in a school today? Okay. So the teachers were like that. They were screamers. They were yellers. They were, they were angry people. You know how the, you know, that game Angry Birds? I often think of the teachers I went to school under with. They were angry birds. Okay, that they were always upset until, they, and I hated school, didn't do well with school because it was the teachers. And we moved in the middle of my fourth grade year and I dreaded school number one and now it was worse because I'm going to a new school and I'm going to be the odd kid in the class and you know how it is, middle of the year you come in, move to a different community and everybody has their friends and it's going to be worse. But I had a teacher who just absolutely changed my life. She was, uh, she was a young gal. Uh, Sister Derici was her name. And she was so gracious, so kind. She was pulled out of our classroom several times and we could hear her being yelled at that she's not strict enough. She's not mean enough. And so she was this kind, gracious, very encouraging. And I fell in love with school because of her. And so we have we have some teachers that are really good. You and I, we look back and we say, yeah, there's probably one or two in our lives that made a huge impact. Well, God is describing grace as that type of teacher. The type of teacher that will really be patient, really kind to you, really helpful to you, really positive, but also will deal with you when you need to be dealt with, as we'll see in this text. So grace is this God-given tutor that comes into our life. Now, according to the following verses, here's the course that grace teaches us or the classes that he teaches. The instruction, course number 101, 102, 103. They're listed out. Look at the rest of few verses. On what we should say, it says, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. What's that mean? What's that? That is giving us this concept. That grace is trying to give us a word to say. The right word to say on a daily basis is this, no. To learn to say no. 
In other words, I'm going to put it this way. Grace is giving us a lesson to leave our past, to let go of our past, to not keep on renewing our past. The word he uses here for denying ungodliness, ungodliness and worldly lust literally means to refuse, to disown. It has the idea, it's a strong negative, with the idea that you are verbally going to reject something or some, uh, someone. And the idea here is that you and I are supposed to speak up, speak out, and say no to certain things. That's a really challenging thought. This goes against what some of us have heard in churches past. The idea here is that grace does not allow us, think this through, grace does not allow us to say yes to everything. Have you ever heard Christians say this? Well, I'm saved by grace, I can do anything. I can, you know, I'm permitted to do anything. There shouldn't be any restrictions upon me. Not according to this text. According to this text, the grace that saved you wants you to say no. Isn't it interesting? Grace emphasizes saying no before it says yes. The first thing that he's talking about is the first response you and I need to have through grace working with us is saying no to a lot of things. A lot of things in our past. Take your Bibles, hold your fingers here, and go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And remind yourselves of what he is saying about this concept in Ephesians chapter 4. Watch what he does. Ephesians 4, down in verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you stop... No more, henceforth, walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Stop doing this. And he goes on, describes, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, gave themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so, be, be that, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you what? What does he tell you? What's the command? I'm in verse 22. Okay, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. That means say no. Say no to things that you've done in the past. Say no to some of those words, some of those actions, some of those responses, some of those, you know, those thoughts that you've had. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Then he gives us illustration or application. Wherefore, say no to lying. Put away lying. But instead, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but sin not. Say no to unrighteous anger. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't say no to holding a grudge. He goes on. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. Say no to thievery. Say no to taking that which isn't yours. Say no to the idea of not returning something that you borrowed because you like it. But rather, labor, working with your hands, the thing which is good that you may have to give to him that needs. Say no to corrupt communication that may proceed out of your mouth, but rather say, uh, but do that which is good to the use of edifying that may minister grace. Say no to grieving the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Say no to bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. Let that all be put away from you with all malice. Instead, be kind one to another, tender heart forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. He goes and says in Titus, what I want you to do is say no to anything and everything that is contrary to what Christ would have for your life. That would be contrary to Jesus Christ. Say no. 
For some of us, that's so hard because it's our friends that want us to go with them and do something. It's our friends that's, that tell us the jokes and want us to respond to the dirt. It's our friends who want us to do the drinking, the bar hopping, or the dating uh, with a lost person. Say no. It's our friends or family that tell us that we shouldn't be involved with church so much. It's friends and family that discourage at times from taking steps of commitment to Christ. Say no. It's our friends that say, hey, watch this movie. It has some filth, but it won't, you know, it'll be okay. We need to learn to say no to that which is ungodly and has worldly lust to it. And so he goes on and talks about this, but before we go any further, let me just remind you about this. We as parents, when we're training children to talk, we teach them a lot more so when they're really little. We say no a whole lot more than we say a whole lot of other things to them. Yes, no? You feel as a parent with a toddler that you are forever saying no, 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 no. I've told you this. We said no so much to Tony. People would ask him, what's his name? No, no. Okay, and that, so we bought him a shirt and said, my name is no, no. Okay. Mark Twain put it this way. When he was talking about children and, and he had some, he said, when a child reaches two years of age, put him in a barrel, feed him through the knot hole. Okay? Nothing about it. Then he says, and when he turns 13, plug the knot hole. Okay? <laughs> I don't agree with Mark Twain. But if, for those of you who have been parenting, you find the humor in there. Okay, that you feel like that some days. Okay, and that's true. But there is this parenting principle. Now, next week I'm going to kick off a series on parenting, and I'm, we're going to get into this at some time. And this is so challenging to parents that we need to talk about it in depth. But there's a parenting principle. It's okay to say no to your kids. It's okay. In fact, the Spirit of God tells us that we're supposed to say no to a lot of things. Okay? But it's okay. For instance, your kid says, I want to eat candy for breakfast, lunch, and supper because I like it. You've you got to say no for the sake of your kid. All that sugar is not going to help them. Your kids say this, I want to stay up as late as I want. I'll go to bed. I'll shut off the lights. Don't worry about it, Mom and Dad. Okay? You're going to say no. Why? It's for their benefit, for their welfare. Oh, hey, I like to play out in the street. I want to play dodge traffic. It's more fun to play dodge traffic than dodge ball. Okay, so we're just going to go out and we're going to play dodge traffic. You as a good parent are going to say, no, they can't do that. You're going to say as a good parent that everything that they want in the store. Excuse me. My kids usually didn't use the word want. When we got into a store, it was not I want that. It was, okay, it wasn't just my kids. It must be part of the human race. I need that. And so you say no at those moments. you got to say no as a parent, right? That there's certain things they can't watch, even though it might be on their iPad, might be coming through the TV, might be, you got to say no if you're a good parent. Well, God is saying in this passage, okay, he's a good parent. He wants us to learn no is an appropriate word. It is proper for our benefit, and that means that he's going to want to work in our life, and we're going to grow. He wants us to grow where we are saying no into certain things because they're not good for us. Who are saved by grace, grace is teaching us to say no. And so God keeps on working, even though it's hard for us to say no at times. I was reading an article I thought was just phenomenal. This quote that's come from, any of you know who Francis Schaeffer is? 
okay, Christian philosopher, uh, writes in. This is really, it was profound what he said about this idea of saying no. We are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We have a society that holds itself back from nothing. Any concept of the word no is avoided as much as possible. Absolutes, ethical principles must give in to selfish pursuits. Of course, this environment fits exactly into our natural disposition as sinners because since the fall of man, we don't want to deny ourselves anything. That is true. That personifies exactly what's going on. And you and I have got to be careful that we learn to say no. It's the appropriate speech for a godly Christian to say no at times. Learn this lesson. This is one of the key words to living a godly life. Say no to that which is ungodly. Now, there's more to this, okay? We have to learn to say more than no at times. There's a story that goes about this golfer. His name is Tommy Bolt. And he's golfing in a tournament out in Los Angeles. And he hit the ball. He goes. He found his ball. And uh, to put this scenario, he was in this tournament. He was lined up with this caddy who on the circuit, everybody knew that this caddy was a real talker. That he jabbed a lot. And so his reputation amongst the pro golfers was that they don't want this caddy because he can distract. So Tommy Bolt had made this deal at the beginning of the course. He had said to this caddy, he said, you don't say anything to me but yes and no. Not a word. Unless I give you permission, don't you dare say anything but yes or no. So he hits the ball. He finds the ball in the tree. And here it's underneath this tree under some of the branches. And he's thinking, you know, what do you think? What should I do? And the caddy doesn't respond because the caddy's been told you're right. Yes or no. Don't say anything. So he's looking. And to get it over there to the green, he's going to have to hit it from under the trees, clear the water, and then there's a rough over there, and then there's the green. And so he says, well, what do you think? A five iron? And the caddy responds, no. What do you mean not a five iron? I can do this with a five iron. No, Mr. Bolt, no. He said, oh, I'll show you. He took the five iron, and he hit the shot. It was a beautiful shot. The ball skimmed above the water, went above the rough, and landed on the green, and was within two feet of the hole. It was a phenomenal shot. He turned to the caddy. He says, what do you think of that? You said I couldn't do it. You said no. What do you think? You can talk now. It wasn't your ball. Okay? <laughs> There's times when we say more than just no. That's appropriate. So God in this passage is telling us something else. God is saying there's another part of speech that is so important. It is this. The second right word to say at times is the word yes. The word yes. Okay? We say no to denying the worldly lust, that which is ungodly, and then we say yes to what does he say in this passage? We should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. Say yes Say yes means this. We live right in this present life. We say no. We leave the past behind. We live right in this present life. And so what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we have to be. And I I think it's interesting that he talks about that in this present world. The idea is that we as believers are not being taken out of this world. We're left here for a reason. We have to to deal with the world. We aren't supposed to go into our our, chapels and monasteries. We're rather to have interaction. But grace tells us we should say no to certain things, but we need to say yes to other things. Oh, by the way, back in Ephesians, isn't that that concept? Rather put off the lying, but speak the truth and love one to another. Put off the anger. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, but rather speak that which is good communication. Grieve not the spirit, but say yes to kindness, tenderness, forgiveness, even as Christ has forgiven us. So there's a no and a yes in our Christian life. The yes here in this text is telling us exactly what we should say yes to. There are three things. 
that he defines in this passage. He just says we're supposed to basically say yes to living soberly, living righteously, and living godly. Let's take that idea, okay? Living soberly, it isn't the idea that we shouldn't be drunk. You know, that's not the idea that, you know, not be intoxicated. That is not the word, okay? This isn't the idea of saying, okay, it's okay to drink socially as long as you don't get drunk. Don't let somebody fool you into that. That's, saying, that's what this text saying. The word that he used has nothing to do with alcohol, whether good or bad. What the word is, is talking about the uh, different idea. Now, this is the same word that is used earlier in the chapter, talking about the older man living, living soberly or soundly. It is the same word that is called upon the mom the wives, to live a sober life. The word is self-controlled idea. It's the idea of that the young men are supposed to have, and now in verse 12 he's saying, okay, this is something every Christian should have. The word literally means thinking with a sound mind. It has the idea of thinking through. It has the idea of discerning, looking at and evaluating and saying, now wait a minute, where's this taking me? And that you aren't just plunging in, but you're thinking with wisdom. You're thinking with accuracy about things and consequences and you're evaluating. Where will this lead me? What will this do in my life? Maybe we should put it this way. Okay. It would be, wise thinking is this, is stopping and saying, I'm going to have to pay all the things I charge on my credit card. I'm going to have to pay it, yes? Some of you are not convinced, Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to pay what's on our credit card, so don't put everything on the credit card. Be careful what you put on. You're going to have to pay. That's living wisely. Living wisely is the idea that, hey, I get this temper tantrum and I throw things and I break things. When you throw things and break things, you have to pay for them to get repaired. You've got to repair the relationships. You've got to mend the problems. So stop throwing things. Stop reacting with such violence and anger. It's like the person who gets mad and all of a sudden they want to do some road rage. Well, think this through. What benefit is that road rage besides getting a ticket? You know, getting a problem or getting somebody even more angry at you and then they respond. Think through. It's the idea of saying, okay, I, I have people telling me all these things about all these people and they're, they're very hypercritical and they're telling me all this stuff about others. If they are talking to you about others, they are probably talking about you to others. Think it through. That type of person you want to be very leery about. Okay? That's just the human nature that you realize. It, it, it's thinking through. We reap what we sow. Therefore, the wise person says, I want to be careful what I sow. The wise person says, okay, this, my sin, according to the word of God, it will find me out. Therefore, don't think I'm getting away with it. I'm not. I'm not. So that should impact how I think and how I live. It's, it's the wise person. is the individual who evaluates what they get involved with, what they do, their activities, their hobbies. They stop and they say, okay, I should be investing the majority of my energy, time, focus on that which will last, not that which is only going to be here for a short time. You've heard the story of that, the sinking of the Titanic. There was one lady who got on the ra one of the boats. The boat was ready to be lowered, and she said, wait! She jumped out of the boat. She said, I'll be back in 30 seconds. She ran into her stateroom, which was on one of the upper decks, because she was one of the hoi polloi of the, on this cruise, and she ran in to get one of that which were, in her mind was so valuable. She passed up all the gems that were there. She passed up her jewelry that was there, and she went for one spot next to her bedstand where there was a basket that had three oranges. 
At that moment, when she's going into the boat and going into the ocean, what was most valuable to her? It wasn't the gems and the jewels. It was food. Isn't it amazing that sometimes that which we consider worthless becomes priceless? And for a believer, this is the way we should be living. What is going to be the most impacting for my life, especially for my life to, to go on and to provide for family, for needs in that regard? And so the wise person, the person who's living soberly, is thinking through values, thinking through that which is important. The wise person is one who is living righteously, saying yes to righteousness. The word literally has the idea of that which is right, that which is you know, virtuous, that which is appropriate, that which is moral. And you've got to say yes to these types of things. Grace is constantly leading us to the aspect of saying, okay, let's focus on that which is pure, that which is holy, that which is morally right. And so we have to think through. There's an interesting comment. It's, it's as an aside, but I was reading in my study through a sermon that somebody had preached, and they got, at this point, they went into a little bit of a diatribe that I thought was so good I want to share with you. The pastor is preaching to his congregation. He's talking about this word in this text talking about righteousness and learning to live and to say what is righteous and he gets on to these words of values and virtues. Listen to this. Living righteously simply means that, by, that you live by the divine standard of what is right. More and more you and I are hearing people talk about their values. They have family values, personal values, the values that made this country great. People who live according to their values, etc., etc., etc. The word values in some way means absolutely nothing because it can be defined any way a person wants to define it. You may have value of human life, but another person may have equal passion value for that person's right to die whenever they want. You might value traditional marriage, but others have equal intensity valuing same-sex marriage. The word value is very subjective. It is defined by whatever it is you personally believe in. Someone might value a hotel because it has rooms where they can smoke, while others value a hotel because there are no smoking rooms on the premises. People have values relating to everything from American-made products to organic foods. Whatever you value is based on whatever you believe, you feel, and you want to do. And values are as varied as the wind. What has been lost to the English language in our generation is the word which values has replaced. And we didn't even notice it until now the word is gone. Values have replaced the word virtues. There's a world of difference between the two. Webster said it's best when he defined virtue as conformity to the right standard. No wonder that word had to go. Objective standards of rightness or righteousness have been replaced by relativistic culture that doesn't want to conform to any ethical or moral or even spiritual absolutes. Values by definition do not conform to any external standard of right or wrong. They are merely created by the person claiming them in order to be perceived as a person of morality. A man says, I hold firmly to these values, and people think, oh, he's such a moral man. No, they're not. They are a person of values. And a person of values is not necessarily a virtuous person. A person who holds to values is simply holding to a standard of stuff he feels good about at that moment because values can change. But virtues 
are based upon an external standard. There is coming a day when the world will stand before God and discover that according to his standard of rightness that many of our values were not virtuous at all. Paul says through Titus, now that you are a believer let the grace of God teach you through the word of God and by the spirit of God what is virtuous. That's what he's talking about here in this text. Okay, having virtues, saying to one another and saying to, to our spirit that we are going to focus on that which is appropriate by God's word. In fact, that's the word godly. It literally says, I need to say yes to that which God says, that which God approves, that which God wants, that which is most godly or godlike. And so here he's making it very clear. I've got to say yes to certain things. I've got to say no to some. I've got to say yes to other things. I've got to say yes to living soberly, living righteously, living godly. But there is another phrase here that we need to put into our language. No, yes, but there is another word or group of words that is critical to our daily speech. It is found in the rest of this segment. It's living simply saying maybe today. Maybe today. In other words, we would say life, grace's life lesson is looking up for our future life. We say no to the past. We are going to live right in the present. We are looking up for the future. And this would impact our life if we remind ourselves daily, say maybe today, maybe today, maybe today. Watch the phrase. While looking, while constantly looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ where he goes and talks who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Let's stop. Let's, let's just take, take the verse and take a little bit of a section. What does this verse teach us about Jesus? There are several things. There are several things in this passage. One is it teaches us and reminds us about his deity. It reminds about who he is. Now, there are some groups like the JWs who look at this text and they say this is one of the proof verses in the Bible that show that Jesus Christ and God are not one and the same. It identifies, it says, the God and our Savior. They are not one and the same. That's very unfortunate that they don't understand the original language. The original language and the way it's written in the original Greek, that is totally erroneous. It is just the opposite. In the original language, the way that he lays this out, the grammar demands that when he's talking about God and about Jesus in verse 13 that he's saying and equating them as one and the same. There is only one one article noun here for both of them. The word that we have, and, could and probably should be translated even to give more of the sense. It's the idea of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then you follow along and look at the next phrase or phrases and they use pronouns. The pronouns that are used referring back to God, Savior, Jesus Christ are all singular pro pronouns. He's not referring backwards to two people but he's referring to one person. The grammar demands that God and Jesus are one and the same in this verse with just different titles. And so it's very clear that we're talking Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God himself coming in the flesh. Now he's also in this verse showing us something else about Jesus Christ. He's coming back. That's the main idea here. That Jesus Christ is coming back personally. That Jesus Christ is coming back physically that we will be able to see him. We are looking for him. We are going to be able to see him coming through the clouds, coming and returning one day. He's going to come suddenly. That idea of looking constantly. He could be at any moment. He could be here 
here that we're looking, we're waiting, we're anticipating. He's coming, obviously, coming back from heaven. He's coming according to this, ta- this text that when he comes, it is going to be a glorious event. It's going to be a grand event. It's going to be that time when the resurrection of the saints takes place. It's going to be grand because we are going to be changed and we will all of a sudden be taken with him back to heaven. We will be reunited with, one, with loved ones. Hallelujah. A lot of you are thinking right now, that's a great event. I get out of here and it gets so much better. And so he says this is a glorious event. This is a wonderful event. But what makes it even more wonderful and more glorious is that the implication is grace is teaching us to get anxious to see Jesus because of all that Jesus has done for us. Comment was made here this past week. Both Jerry made the comment and Doris made the comment to Deb and I when we were making visits with them that they are so anxious to see their spouses who are now with the Lord. They're anxious because of all that their spouses mean to them. This text is saying we should have that same anxiousness for Jesus Christ because of all that he means to us. Look at what he's done. Look what this text describes Jesus doing for you. It says in this text that he gave himself a ransom Okay, gave himself for us that we might read that he might redeem us from all iniquity. The idea here is that you and I are on a slave market. It's a spiritual slave market. We are on this block. We are being auctioned off. Sin is bidding for us. Jesus comes up and he pays the price to get us freed from that auction block, to free us from the domination of sin in our life, to free us from the domination of the world in our life, that he has given us liberty and freedom from those chains of oppression. And the payment that he made, it was him. He gave himself. He gave everything he had. He voluntarily paid the highest price, his own life, so that you and I could live. Amazing. Absolutely amazing what he's done. So that we would be freed from lawlessness. From just doing whatever we want which would get us into trouble. From playing in the streets, eating the candy, staying up all night. That we would learn that there is standards of right and wrong that are for our benefit and that will give us long life. And life that we will one day hear, thou good and faithful servant. He's talking about cleaning us up. He says that will, that will deliver us from this iniquity. But then he says, and purify unto himself. The idea of this peculiar people. It's a cleansing work. This Jesus is constantly working to make us better, pure, more Christ-like, more like him, so that it is clear to everyone we belong to Jesus. We are Christ ones. We are Christian. That he is our master. He is our Lord. And so the text is building this whole up as he's going through. And then he adds this. Christ did all that so that not only would he help us to grow, but also so that we would become zealous of good works. That we'd become enthusiastic to do labors. That's what this text is saying that you and I need to be anxious for and saying maybe today, maybe this great Christ is going to come back. Maybe today he's going to come and take us home. Maybe today... And so we want to live in a way that pleases him, in a way that would honor him, in a way that would would respect him. Great teacher. Grace is a wonderful teacher. Here it is. Grace is teaching us. It is calling us to say certain words. It is asking for us to, first of all, make sure that we know that we have accepted the salvation that has appeared to all men. Now, I ask you this. Have you done that? You say, well, wait a minute. I come to church. That's not what I asked you. Have you personally asked and accepted this grace that has appeared to all men. Have you asked grace 
to apply the application of redemption to your heart. You say, well, my mom and dad are saved. That doesn't mean you're saved. Well, we come to church every week. That doesn't mean you're saved. I got baptized. It doesn't mean you're saved. Have you responded to grace? Do you know for sure what's going to happen in the future? There's a fellow, and this is a true story that came from this fellow. His name is Carl McCoon. That, uh, he worked in the oil rigs in Texas, and he went up to Alaska when they were working in the pipeline. And so he wanted to work up there, and he loved Alaska. single man thought, I'm going to make lots of money, and he did up there. And he loved the wilderness. His hobby was photography. And so he decided that what he did before, what he would do before he'd come back to the, the bottom uh, 49, that, or 48, what he would do is he was going to spend five months in the wilderness of Alaska, go out in the spring, come back in late summer, and he was going to go and live by himself, take his gun with him, take his camera with him, him, go out there and live out there on his own for five months to have a, an adventure of a lifetime and create a photographic album that maybe he could produce and, and enjoy for himself if nothing else. He spent weeks in preparation. He talked to people who had been in the wilderness. He talked to individuals about, about what's the best way to can take the food and contain the food. What's the best equipment for being out there as far as tent and clothing. What about the weapon that he needs to take. What about this, that, and the other thing. And he took loads of stuff. He worked on this for two years getting himself prepared for this expedition. And he finally hired the bush pilot, had him fly him into the region of Alaska, into this remote region, and uh, got bloated, took care of everything, and he kept a diary. That's how come we know what's gone on here, is from his diary, that he got there in uh, springtime around this time of the year, and in August, he wrote in his diary, for all the plans that I made, I just realized I forgot to make one plan. Somebody come and get me. He said, I made no plans for my departure. I hope that my friends will remember that this is about the time of the year I'm supposed to come back. We've got his records because they were found next to his body a year later. Even up to the very last few days where he is writing and he is saying, I don't know how I could have made such a terrible mistake. I am starving. If only I had, and he's out of his weapons. He's got no more, no more um, uh, ammunition. He's run out of food. And he's putting in here, if only I had thought about my departure. You know, there are people who live in this world day in and day out and do not think about their departure. They are all about what I'm going to live, how I'm going to live, and about this experience. But they never plan how are they going to leave this world. McCune left it in a very tragic way, and so will you if you do not accept what grace is calling out to you to do. Grace is literally calling out, be born again. Call upon Christ as your Savior. Listen to the voice of grace. Ask Christ to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, to give you eternal life. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, it's very simple, very clear, but you have to call. So grace there is talking and calling to us and saying, I want you to be prepared for your exit. Grace is a great teacher, but it also calls for you to live the right way. And it's asking us to be willing to say certain words every day. Those words are very simple. The words are so clear. The words, as we said this evening, are no to that which displeases Christ. Yes to that which is pleasing to Christ. And then that one phrase that we want to live on a daily basis is what? 
Maybe today. Maybe today. It's a tremendous lesson, tremendous speech lesson that he's given to us. But there is one area of speech I haven't talked about, but I want to shift gears, and this is the speech lesson that we need to be talking about that Grace would have us to do this evening. Grace would have us right now working on saying thank you, working on singing to him, working on giving God the glory that we are saying thank you for what you have done. We're going to have the kids come back while we sing. As we prepare our hearts and our minds for the communion service, let's worship the Lord. Let's say thank you from the depths of our heart and give him praise because he gives us a testimony that we can be prepared for him to live for him.